0: Welcome to PQ Talk on Call, a podcast dedicated to current and aspiring intensivists. My name is Pradeep Kamal.
1: And my name is Rahul Demania, And we come to you from Children's Healthcare of Atlanta, Emory University School of Medicine. Today's episode is dedicated to the rational use of antibiotics in the PICU.
0: We are delighted to be joined by two brilliant pediatric clinical pharmacists. Ms. Whitney Moore and Ms. Stephanie Yesachko from Children's Healthcare of Atlanta. I will now turn it to Rahul to start with our patient case.
1: An eight-year-old female with the past medical history significant for severe persistent asthma and history of multiple PICU admissions presents to the emergency department with swelling, redness, and inability to bear weight in her left lower leg patient had just finished soccer practice the evening prior to her ED visit when she first noticed swelling and redness of her left lower extremity. She also had a fever as well as some non-bloody non-bilious hemesis. Her past history is significant for poorly controlled asthma with multiple admissions to the PICU. Upon arrival to the ED, the patient's blood pressure was low, the patient was tachycardic and tachypneic. She was given two 20 ml per kilo normal saline boluses, blood cultures were drawn in addition to inflammatory markers, a UA, and a CBC. Labs were notable for an elevated white count, lactate, and serum creatinine. The patient was given a dose of antibiotics and transported to the PICU for further workup and management. Whitney and Stephanie, welcome to on Call.
2: Thanks Rahul and Pradeep for having us. Neither one of us have any
1: financial disclosures or conflicts of interest. We want to divide today's discussion into three major segments. Number one, we'll start with antibiotic selection in the PICU, transition into dosing, and then finally, we will end our podcast with therapeutic monitoring.
0: Whitney, what are some of the factors to consider prior to choosing an antibiotic regimen in a patient in this case? Who has a preliminary diagnosis of cellulitis of the left lower extremity with a possible sepsis?
2: Yeah. So first and foremost, you want to consider your hosts. So really diving deep into that patient's past medical history, and then secondly, we should consider the likely pathogens that are causing the patient's infection. In this case, given the invasive nature of her infection and recent hospital admissions, I would start vancomycin and cefepime. Then once her blood cultures result back, we can tailor or narrow her antibiotics based on susceptibilities.
0: Stephanie, what are some of the other factors to consider prior to starting antibiotics in this patient?
3: Other things to consider include her multiple previous hospitalizations, significant exposure to broad-spectrum antibiotics, whether or not she's immunocompromised, the presence of chronic conditions like lung disease, ventilator and trach dependency, if this patient was a resident of a long-term care facility, and additionally, any history of organ or bone marrow transplant or malignancy with use of chemotherapy and or radiation, as well as history of growth of multiple drug-resistant organisms. These are all factors that need to be taken into consideration prior to antibiotic initiation.
1: I definitely agree with you, and I think that this is an important point to highlight to our listeners. Infectious disease is not just about the relevant pathogen or bug, but it is about also understanding the host status. Stephanie, why vancomycin and cefepime in this case?
3: Yeah, so in this patient, the major pathogens to consider include Pseudomonas aeruginosa, given her multiple previous PICU admissions. Also, she has extensive cellulitis, which necessitates antibiotic coverage against MRSA and strep pio. So our options in this case include vancomycin for broad-spectrum gram-positive coverage and generally either Piptazo or Cefepime for broad-spectrum gram-negative and pseudomonal coverage. As you can see by this patient's serum creatinine, it appears that she is presenting an AKI since we have no history of her having any type of renal impairment at baseline. Therefore, to minimize additional AKI risk, cefepime would be our most appropriate choice for the time being because there is literature that shows us that the combination of vancomycin and Piptazo specifically has a much higher risk of AKI than other nephrotoxic combinations and should be avoided if possible.
0: Whitney. Let's now transition from antibiotic selection to dosing. How would you dose vancomycin and cefepime in this patient?
2: Great question. So, an appropriate dose of vancomycin to start here would be 15 milligrams per kilogram with a max of 1,000 milligrams. However, instead of scheduling a defined frequency, we would more than likely, pharmacy would recommend just giving a times one dose and then checking a level in a couple of hours, and especially doing this in all patients who present with any type of unstable renal function. Traditionally, vancomycin is dosed either 20 milligrams per kilogram um, per dose IV every eight hours or 15 milligrams per kilogram per dose every six hours with a max of 1,000 milligrams. On the other hand, cefepime is traditionally dosed at 50 milligrams per kilogram per dose IV every eight hours. However, since our patient has AKI, we should calculate her creatinine clearance or her estimated glomerular filtration rate or GFR to renally adjust the dose. As you know, there are multiple equations that we could use to calculate her clearance, but the modified bedside Schwartz equation is the gold standard for pediatric patients. So once we know her GFR or her creatinine clearance, then we can adjust the dose for her AKI.
1: I think that this is a great time to start to highlight the importance of collaboration between the intensivist, nursing, and the pharmacy team. These children are already tenuous, and as we treat with broad-spectrum antibiotics, it is important to also consider the side effects such as nephrotoxicity of broad-spectrum antibiotics. As we discuss specifics of dosing of vancomycin and cefepime, Stephanie, if we take a step back, what are some of the other factors to consider prior to antibiotic dosing?
3: In terms of selecting the most appropriate dose, we always want to consider factors like age, weight, renal, and hepatic function, as well as the area and the body we wish to penetrate, such as the CNS, the bone, and the blood. Additionally, it's also very important to identify whether or not the patient is currently receiving continuous renal replacement therapy, plasma exchange, ECMO, or fluids and or diuretics, because all of these can affect drugs quite significantly from a pharmacokinetic standpoint. Lexicomp is the gold standard for pediatric dosing. And of course, your clinical pharmacist specialist is always available to help with dosing references and can provide recommendations on how to most appropriately dose your specific patient.
0: Whitney, how would you monitor the patient, given evidence of acute kidney injury and the need for a nephrotoxic antibiotic such as vancomycin?
2: Yeah, so depending on the severity of the renal function, the vancomycin level can be checked anywhere from 8 to 24 hours post that first dose. A therapeutic steady state drug concentration is usually reached after the administration of about 3 to 4 doses or 4 to 5 half-lives. So, the therapeutic gold trough level that we want for all infections is about 10 to 15 micrograms per ml, except for those harder to penetrate areas like the CNS or the heart. And in those cases, we target a higher trough of 15 to 20 micrograms per
1: ml. To summarize, those hard to reach areas, such as the blood brain barrier or the heart, we should ensure a higher trough in order for us to reach therapeutic effect. Stephanie, what are important points? regarding trough monitoring vancomycin.
3: So trough monitoring actually represents a therapeutic controversy within the pharmacy community as recent vancomycin dosing guidelines have changed to now recommend area under the curve or AUC guided monitoring as the most efficacious and safe way to monitor the drug given its narrow therapeutic range and increased nephrotoxic risk with trough monitoring. Here at our institution, we have not yet fully incorporated this new monitoring technique. We are reserving a you see monitoring for patients with MRSA bacteremia or for those who are unable to achieve therapeutic troughs with traditional dosing.
1: This is a great example of an element which is on the horizon and we may see generally accepted in the near future. Now that we have discussed vancomycin, Stephanie, what about dosing and monitoring of cefepime in our patient?
3: Cefepime, on the other hand, does not require therapeutic drug monitoring So, determination of an appropriate dose is dependent on creatinine clearance, and it is important to recognize that continuous adjustments may need to be made as renal function improves or declines. Always refer to LexiComp for all renal dose adjustments. A good rule of thumb, though, is that if creatinine clearance is greater than 50, a patient can generally be dosed normally. Anything less should definitely be evaluated.
1: Let's wrap up this section by summarizing some important dosing points for vancomycin and cefepime. Whitney, as your patient improves, how would you approach de-escalation of antibiotics?
2: Yeah, so there's two important points that I want you to remember when dosing vancomycin and cefepime. First is knowing the maximum dose of each medication. Cefepime, we max the dose at 2,000 milligrams per dose, and our initial starting dose for vancomycin is 1,000 milligrams, as we talked about before. We can go up to 1250, but only after we've drawn levels and absolutely need to and feel like our dose or the trough is too low. But knowing the maximum dose is an important point to consider when dosing a large patient because you don't want to exceed the maximum adult dose. The second important point that I want you guys to remember is calculating the patient's clearance and adjusting the dose and or frequency based on the patient's renal function as needed. Now, in regards to de-escalation of antibiotics, once the patient is no longer septic, their AKI has resolved and cultures and susceptibilities have resulted, then the team will determine if a full treatment course is warranted or not. If it is, then broad-spectrum antibiotics can be discontinued and we can narrow to an antibiotic that the patient's pathogen is susceptible to.
1: This is an important point. Narrowing broad-spectrum antimicrobials optimizes antibiotic stewardship. As we build on our case, Stephanie, if the blood culture grew MSSA, What antibiotic would be used and how will it be dosed?
3: When a patient's blood culture is positive for MSSA, it is considered an invasive infection. Most common sources of bacteremia include endocarditis, skin and soft tissue infections, intravascular catheter infections, bone and joint infections, as well as pneumonia. And in 25%, there is no source. MSSA can give rise to sepsis syndrome and septic shock with a mortality of 10 to 20%. We typically use nafcillin or oxacillin 2 grams IV every four hours or even an infusion. One retrospective study reported that continuous oxacillin was an effective alternative to intermittent oxacillin for the treatment of infective endocarditis caused by MSSA and may improve microbiological cure. Cefazolin can also be another option for patient, and then for patients who cannot be treated with beta-lactams, vancomycin or daptomycin should be used. For uncomplicated bacteremia, a two-week regimen is used and for complicated infections, we typically do four to six-week course. Additionally, clindamycin has been shown to have bacteriostatic effects and to reduce production of bacterial toxins in patients who have toxic shock syndrome from staphylococcal species.
1: Key points to take away, MSSA likes to form a biofilm, especially on internal hardware, and continuous oxacillin may be an effective option for treatment prior to consider removing the hardware for source control.
0: So a final portion of this podcast relates to specific clinical scenarios. We will be covering broad-spectrum therapy for specific patient populations admitted to the pediatric intensive care unit. We will cover antibiotic coverage for patients who have cancer, solid organ transplant or immunosuppression, neonatal sepsis, sickle cell disease, and children who have VP shunts, perforated appendicitis, Lemire's disease, and finally, the undifferentiated critically ill child. Whitney, Let's start with patients who have an underlying hematologic malignancy. What would be your initial empiric antimicrobial regimen for these cancer patients?
2: Yeah, great question. So we typically use cefepime or zocin for gram-negative coverage to cover bugs like pseudomonas and enterobacteraceae. And for enhanced gram-positive coverage for your staph and strep bugs, we add vancomycin, especially if there is presence of a central line-associated bloodstream infection or if the patient has severe mucositis, a skin and soft tissue infection, pneumonia, or is hemodynamically unstable. And then if the patient's fever continues with no source identification by about day four to seven, then you want to consider adding an antifungal agent like mycofungin or caspafungin. And if the patient is already on an antifungal for prophylaxis, then you want to add voriconazole.
0: What about the patient who has a solid organ transplant on immunosuppression or who presents with septic shock?
2: Yeah. So in those transplant patients or those patients who are immunosuppressed, we should first consider the fact that some immunosuppressive medications are known to be nephrotoxic and interact with other medications. The second thing that we should be thinking about is, like I said before, is our host. So if they're immune compromised, then they'll need broader coverage. So therefore, the most appropriate choices in this case would be vancomycin and cefepime again. If the patient continues to clinically decompensate, then it would be appropriate to add on that antifungal coverage like we talked about.
1: This is an important point. Immunosuppressants may compound end-organ dysfunction and further may have key drug interactions such as with the CYP enzymes. These may alter your antimicrobial or antifungal kinetics. Stephanie, let's continue with our special patient populations. Which antibiotics would we consider in neonatal sepsis?
3: In neonatal sepsis, we want to cover group B strep, E. coli, and other gram-negatives, along with listeria species. Therefore, our go-to agents are usually going to be ampicillin and gentamicin. However, you will want to consider replacing gentamicin with ceftazidime if there is a strong suspicion for meningitis. Always discontinue antibiotics if cultures are negative after 48 hours and suspicion for infection is low based on inflammatory markers.
1: What about the patient with fever, headache, altered sensorium concerning for bacterial meningitis? Can you also comment on the patient with a VP shunt infection or brain abscess?
3: Yeah. So in this scenario, it is essential to select antimicrobials that penetrate the CNS. Therefore, generally speaking, an appropriate selection would be vancomycin and septriaxone, the more inflamed the meninges are, the greater CNS penetration you are going to get with vancomycin. We would also add metronidazole for a brain abscess um, to vancomycin and ceftriaxone to cover for anaerobic organisms. And then, of course, if you are concerned for a pseudomonal infection, ceftriaxone could then, of course, be brought into cefepime.
1: The addition of vancomycin combined with ceftriaxone, especially in patients who have meningitis and no hardware, is important in overcoming resistant strep pneumo strains.
0: Whitney, what is our coverage for perforated appendicitis with sepsis?
2: Yeah, so if a patient presents with a perforated appendicitis with sepsis, piperacillin-tazobactam or zosyn is going to be our preferred agent. Also, you could use the combination of ampicillin, genomycin, and metronidazole. But the big thing is when you're thinking about appendicitis, you want to cover for all your GI bugs like Klebsiella, Proteus, Bacteroides, and other anaerobes. And then one thing to note when thinking about gut coverage is clindamycin's resistance to Bacteroides is increasing and is up to about 60% worldwide. Therefore, we no longer recommend clindamycin for intra-abdominal infections.
1: Stephanie, what about neck abscesses and septic thrombophlebitis, such as Lemire syndrome?
3: A beta-lactamase-resistant beta-lactam antibiotic, such as ampicillin sulbactam or unison, is recommended as an empiric therapy due to case reports of treatment failures with penicillin secondary to beta-lactamase-producing fusobacterium necroforum. Antibiotics should, of course, be tailored to the culture results and susceptibility data when available. Alternative options do include clindamycin or metronidazole for patients with significant clinical allergy to beta-lactams. And then clindamycin is the preferred agent for head, neck, and lung anaerobic infections as it does have activity against metronidazole-resistant organisms such as actinomycetes and peptostreptococci.
1: I think this is important for us to highlight to our listeners that the likely microbe associated with Lemire's disease is Fusobacterium necroforum.
0: Whitney, let's conclude with a final patient population. What is your typical coverage in patients with sickle cell disease who present with sepsis or acute chest syndrome and are admitted to the PQ?
2: Yeah, great question. So levofloxacin or levoquin is our agent of choice in this scenario to provide routine bacterial coverage as well as atypical coverage for those sickle cell patients. Traditionally, in the past, we had always done a third-generation cephalosporin, but we try to avoid that um, or the empiric use of ceftriaxone specifically due to the association with life-threatening hemolysis after administration.
1: Now, though the incidence of this phenomena is rare, I think it's really important for us to understand that ceftriaxone can cause a very rapid intravascular hemolysis in these patients who are already sickling and having compromised oxygen delivery due to their anemia. All right, Stephanie, we have reached the end of our episode today, but I have one more question. As a fellow, when I'm on call and we have a previously healthy child who presents to the PICU and is critically ill, hemodynamically unstable, What are the antibiotics we should consider at that point?
3: Yeah. So once again, the concept of where exactly we think the source of the infection is will drive antibiotic selection with the goal of providing the best empiric therapy for the most likely pathogen. In a previously healthy patient who has really had no hospitalizations or antibiotic exposure, We could start with ceftriaxone. If the patient, however, has MRSA or pseudomonal risk factors, at that point, we would then need to broaden to vancomycin and either cefepime, ceftazidime, or piptazo.
1: To take this episode home, remember to consider host status, source of infection, and likely microbes prior to initiation of broad-spectrum therapy, and then narrow accordingly.
0: Whitney and Stephanie, thank you so much for your expertise on common bugs and drugs. This was a great discussion and we really value your expertise. Now, what are your take-home clinical pearls for antimicrobial use in the PICU?
3: So your clinical pharmacist can always help with choice of antibiotics as well as dosing and monitoring, especially in critically ill children with AKI or hepatic dysfunction. Yeah, and the
2: clinical pharmacists work very closely with the antimicrobial stewardship team and the Infectious Disease Service to choose the most optimal agent with the least amount of toxicity and potential to develop resistance.
3: Yeah, so always have a multidisciplinary approach to tailoring your antibiotics Consider host status and potential pathogens, clinical course, and duration of broad-spectrum therapy. And just as a plug, your pharmacists and infectious disease service members are more than happy to help you along with this process.
0: This concludes our episode today on antimicrobials in the pediatric intensive care setting. We hope you found value in this short podcast as we delved into antimicrobial selection, dosing, and special population. We welcome you to share your feedback and place a review on our podcast. As always, You Doc on Call is hosted by me, Pradeep Kamath, and my co-host, Dr. Rahul Dimania. Stay tuned for our next episode. Thank you.